online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, delays to cherry picking in northern Tasmania. Uh, our cherry crop is very light. Um, we put it down to two or three things. We think we were frost when they were flowering. It was very cold and the bees didn't work very well. But in general, our crop is very light. It's a fortnight later this year. We're about a fortnight from picking. And a mango season to forget for one long-term grower. Oh, it's most probably been the most difficult mango season that I can uh, remember. Yeah, very, very testing times. Very low prices, difficult in terms of hot, you know, heatwave conditions early on. And now we're getting the monsoon right at the end of the season. Yeah, not the easiest of times from one end of the country to the other when it comes to fruit. Cherries and mangoes on the lunchtime table. A few cherries, but plenty of mangoes, those stories coming up. G'day, Tony, with you on this Tuesday. We're judging from a number of people I've spoken to on the land late yesterday and this morning. Major fruit growers dodged a serious storm which ripped through the southeast and brought golf ball-sized hail. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And also today we delve into the discussion about our diets involving meat, vegetables and grains, plus one of the best stories from the country area in 2022 coming up later in the program. Also we'll check on the latest on the weather and take your thoughts on any issue via the text line 0438 Nine double two nine three six is that number, oh four three eight nine double two nine three six. First up, some big fruit growers in southern Tasmania have narrowly escaped major damage to their crops from a fierce storm which threw, ripped through parts of the southeast late yesterday. Campania cherry and apricot grower Jake Newnham says there was a brief shower of rain and some hail, but the orchard was lucky to escape serious rain and hail damage. There was a few big hailstones that started to fall which really wouldn't be that friendly to our apricots at this minute, but uh, they seem to pass fairly quickly, so I, I doubt we got too much damage out of that. And we have a, quite a few blocks of cherries just about ready for harvest, and they don't like too much rain at this time either. But we only got two mil, and it was short and sharp. The wind, the wind's out now to dry everything off, and it's still quite warm, so I'm fairly hopeful there. Uh, the early season cherries, though, uh, not uh, not a good year? No. We've had quite a bit of rain here and there up to this point especially uh, about a month ago that was a fairly critical time for our early cherries so we've incurred quite a bit of damage there rain splitting and whatnot and just haven't had enough heat units really to push things forwards enough i don't think did you pick any at all uh we've picked a couple early varieties just for um farm gate market in tasmania here and and a few of our own customers that buy directly from our farm gate store not any significant volume and again the quality is not what we would have liked in the past so how much of the early season crop did you think you lost? I guess the early season crop, we'll refer to that as like our earliest 50% of our total crop. And of that first half, we've probably lost, I don't know, 30, 40% maybe. It's hard to really say because it happens quite, it happened, you know, a month ago, most of the damage. So if those cherries have shriveled up and stopped taking nutrition from the tree, then the surviving cherries can actually grow a bit bigger. And, you know, in early December, you may lose 30% of the cherries, but the yield might recover a little bit with the, the remaining cherries growing in size. So when are you picking the remaining cherries? How long for them? Uh, when people are listening to this, probably we'll be picking some fruit right now. And uh, that's looking okay? Uh, yeah, look, I'll be honest, I haven't gone and had a look after this rain we just had today. I don't really want to, to be honest. So I'm hoping it's okay, though. As I said, it's, it's copped a bit of damage already. 
but hopefully it's no worse than it was last time I looked at it. And what about the uh, apricots? Yeah, so far so good. I um, really had the fingers crossed today that we weren't going to get get this hail, and, and when those big ones started to fall, I started to stress a little bit, but um, they're looking okay. They're, they're looking quite good. And it's going to be, um, a, what, an average crop or a below average? How are you looking at it? Uh, slightly below average for cherries, slightly below average for apricots, I think, and quite late as well. So you're glad 2023 is here? Yeah, it's it's not been a good one. We, we've have we have a lot of our trees suffering from wet feet from a few wet winters in a row too. So yeah, hopefully a few different weather patterns to come this year. 22 can uh, yeah, I'm glad it's gone. Yeah, and I suppose it doesn't help with uh, with workers either getting them uh, getting them organised. No, no, uh, the horticulture industry is uh, struggling for workers at the moment. There's been a few changes to the uh, award which is going to challenge some people and challenge our record-keeping a bit. Um, I think there are some more backpackers starting to come back into the country now since since we've relaxed things a bit COVID-wise, so that should um, pump up the workforce a bit, I guess. So you, you're glad you followed in Dad's shoes? <laughs> Depends which day you ask me. <laughs> if you asked me an, an hour ago when it was starting to rain quite heavily and hail, I probably would have said no, but, you know, these things, some seasons are tough. You can only just push through it and see how everything shakes out at the end. Uh, generally speaking, you know, it's a good life. I like this life. So, yeah, I guess in general, yeah. you just got to take what you get with the weather, eh? Yeah, yeah, we can't control it. So um, we've actually installed about a hectare of rain covers this year, so that should help us with that. And the cherries you pick, where where do they end up? Quite a bit of it in Asia, through export markets, mostly in Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, etc. And we sell quite a bit through the uh, Melbourne and Sydney wholesale market as well. And the apricots? Uh, apricots, we sell about 80 tonnes a year. We sell about 20 tonnes of that here in Tasmania through combined through our, our own farm shop here and through some uh, retailers we have in the state we sell direct to. And the remaining is split basically between Sydney and Melbourne. So the same agents selling cherries domestically for us are also selling apricots. And we don't too, hear too much about the apricots. It's mainly apples, cherries and berries, but uh, apricots have been been around and uh, they're a stable, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, so we grow a variety of apricots called Moor Park, which is the original apricot that was brought to Australia in, I don't know, a couple hundred years ago. So not really grown commercially anymore. We have a bit of a, a niche customer there, I guess. Well, listen, good luck for the rest of uh, the harvest and hope um, 2023 is a bit better. Thanks, Tony. I'm sure it will be. So fingers crossed. Stay positive. Eh? Well, I think things will be fine. Yeah, Campania Cherry and Apricot Grower Jake Newnham on the wild storm which skirted the orchard late yesterday and his take on the latest cherry and apricot season. Well, as we've heard, cherry growers down south have lost uh, major amounts of their crops thanks to the rain uh, early in the season. And things aren't looking too good up north either. Sassafras Orchard's John Brown says that cherry trees are looking light this year as well as being a couple of weeks behind schedule. He says the apples are faring much better but may have a different kind of problem, not enough pickers. Meg Powell spoke to John Brown about the latest conditions in the orchard at Sassafras. Pretty wet up until the last fortnight but they've yeah, been reasonable, yes. John, you're part of the, the Sassafras Orchard out there. Could you paint me a picture of the operation? Oh, yes, we're uh, mainly apple growers, grow a few pears, but mainly apple growers and have some cherries, but not great volumes, yes. Speaking of cherries, it's it's coming up to cherry season. How are they looking this year? 
Uh, our cherry crop is very light. Um, we put it down to two or three things. We think there was frost when they were flowering. It was very cold and the, peas, the bees didn't work very well. But in general, our crop is very light. Right, and that's um, different to the apples. Yes, the apple crop is very heavy. Uh, matter of fact, we're battling to get enough uh, people to thin the apples. The crop's very heavy and we need 100 and we've got 50. So that's a real problem with labour. But the apple crop is very heavy. Mm, right, that's been and that's been a repeat thing for the past couple of years with COVID. Yes, labour is a real... The, the backpackers don't come like they used to and they were the good, reliable pickers. They wanted to come because they wanted to work and wanted money. But uh, the people that are about today just don't seem to want to work. Now, back to the cherries. How yes. far away are we from getting seeing those and being able to buy those? We're about a fortnight from picking, fortnight to three weeks. It's a bit later. It's a fortnight later this year, but we're about a fortnight from picking. And is that a rain thing as well? Yes, I think the rain was a very wet winter and the rain, is every, every crop's a bit later really. And is that, is that a thing you've been hearing from other cherry growers around, that they've got up, a bit lighter? Up, yeah, I think up north here and up north towards Launceston, the crops are very light, but down south it's a normal season. Right, and how does that affect the prices? Oh, I should imagine uh, supply and demand controls everything uh, and the price should be higher than it normally is, yes. Which would be good for you, you I suppose. Yeah, for the few, the few shares you've got, it'll be better, yes. The past couple of years, you said you have been a bit affected by um, labour shortages and also yeah. the weather's not been that good. How are you shaping up this year compared to those years? Uh, yeah, I'd say uh, our apple crop's at least as good as normal, uh, but uh, getting, uh, getting workers is a real problem. Does that affect your viability? How do you stay afloat? Uh, long term, we cannot keep going with, with uh, no labour because anything to do with orchard is a very high labour industry. You know, we need a huge volume for a few weeks of the year. You can't, you can't employ them permanently because you haven't got the work, but through the picking season, we need 100, 150 pickers. And if they're not about, the quality of your fruit, drop, fruit drops off. And the mainland apple crops have been devastated this year with hail and with frost, and uh, the, the apple crops in the mainland are very light. So apples could be a bit iffy soon as well as a lot of other things. Yes, apples will be dearer this year than last year, in my opinion. Right. That, that'll be uh, not great. That's not good news. People love their apples. Yes, it's good news for us, but probably but apples aren't a dear item anyway. Is there the chance for you to use different approaches, such as uh, are there technologies you can use to pick apples and cherries that save a bit of human labour? No, there's not. It's a, it's a very... Uh, labour-intensive industry. You can only pick an apple one way and that's by hand, yes. You, you can have machinery to make it go along the road to make it a bit easier, but the only actual way of picking an apple is pulling off by hand. So the person who is able to invent that will be a rich man, I'm guessing. He'll be a very rich man, yes, yes. <laughs> it, it, you know, good, good apple pickers can make good money. Good, A real good apple picker will make $500 a day, but uh, there's plenty of people who can, you know, it, only make half that. Do you think um, more people will be attracted to it now that the award rate has changed? Well, you're going to get a minimum of 26 bucks an hour, something like that, regardless. But then again, if you're too slow a picker, we won't be able to afford to have you on the property, will we? You know, if a good man can pick 10 bins a day, the old system of $50 a day, uh, and a newcomer comes out and only picks one bin, well, it's going to cost us, uh, uh, you know, two or $300 just to get that bin of apples picked. 
And some people, it's, it's a, there's a real art in being an apple picker. The people who pick 10 bins a day don't work any harder than the people who pick two. Sassafras apple and cherry grower John Brown talking to Meg Powell about the cherries. They're going to be sparse this summer and warning labour shortages may bump up the price of apples. Coming up in a moment, a discussion on livestock, vegetables and grain in the context of agriculture. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au Proudly supported by the Condinen Group and ABC Rural. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Well, the discussion on diet usually happens this time of the year when New Year resolutions are made to change our eating habits. Progress to a more vegetable and grains-based diet maybe, easing away from meat or sometimes the other way around. The topic of what we eat and how the environment is affected was a lively one at a recent conference where experts looked at the overall picture. One of those, Dr Graham Gardner, a livestock measurement technologies expert from Murdoch University, spoke to Richard Hudson about livestock and their emissions. All agriculture generates emissions. That's one thing to say straight up. Methane has, uh, or, or you know, ruminants particularly, have their role to play within it. It's been overstated. So here's a, here's a few interesting numbers for you. Back in the day, before the domestication of ruminants, um, there were a hell of a lot of them still roaming the earth. And in fact, they estimate those numbers to have been 0.86 or 86% of what we've currently got. So it's not like the modern production animal industries have suddenly tripled or quadrupled the number of ruminants that were out there generating mass global warming. It hasn't happened like that. We've effectively got the same numbers that have always been there contributing to this this constantly present bubble of gases, methane, that is part of a, a carbon cycle. So it gets generated and then it gets resequestered by the grass that those animals are eating and then it gets regenerated. And the crucial thing about this is that it's a short-lived gas. So the, the half-life of methane is about five years, whereas carbon dioxide from fossil fuels is 100 years. So in effect, if you were to compare the two, you're basically emitting methane, which is part of this cycle. It's, um, it's being generated but turning over quickly. And so in effect, it's this kind of like this bubble that's existed in the atmosphere um, for as long as we've been around. Whereas the, the digging up of fossil fuels and the, and the constant emissions from that, it's contributing to a bubble that is continuously growing. Let's go beyond methane because some people still feel as though livestock farming is detrimental to the environment beyond just the gases that are coming out in the burps. What are your thoughts on, on those side of things, the damage to the land and the clearing of land, etc.? That's a really good point. So there are several things to consider that go well beyond just the gases that are emitted. Um, you may have heard of the effectively ruminants and livestock competing for land that you could otherwise grow crops on. Whereas in actual fact, if you actually look at it worldwide, 75% of, um, of agricultural production occurs on constant grasslands, so lands that you otherwise could not grow crops on. It's non-arable. 
So for a start, you can't just simply turn around and, and suddenly grow crops everywhere where you've got ruminants. I don't know, I'll give you, a, the, you know, the most extreme example. There's cattle in the Pilbara. You're not going to go up into the Pilbara and grow the equivalent amount of protein through a, um, through a legume-type crop. So that's, uh, that's one of the key issues. Another key constraint here, of course, is that to replace that protein, you've got to go to the, the grains, the pulses, and they're quite restricted in where you can actually grow those. And this is one of the key things. If you go and say, well, let's reduce the amount of livestock that are out there, you're actually reducing the amount of protein that is out there. So you've got to be very careful with that. People will starve if you do that without replacing it. And yet, where you can actually grow these pulse crops is limited, and so therefore it's not an easy transition to make. So when you're talking about growing pulses, that's replacing the protein that you would get from the meat if you chose not to eat meat for health reasons. That's exactly right. You're saying you're going to have to get it from somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's exactly right. And there's, a, there's another thing to consider. So from these crops, I think it's estimated that about one kilogram of grain generates an additional four kilograms of inedible material. Now, guess what you do with that? You feed it to ruminants, and they are spectacular at taking that and turning it into high-quality protein, which you otherwise would not have. And if you weren't doing that, you're actually creating waste that then would need to be dealt with itself. So that, of course, would have an environmental impact. So there's swings and roundabouts here. It's not, a, it's not as simple as just removing ruminants from the system. won't fix it. Another reason why some of the younger generation are tending to turn away from livestock and eating meat is for those health reasons. Either they keep hearing that it's bad for their cholesterol or their fat. They may also have other reasons. They don't like the thought of having livestock in paddocks or in trucks or on ships or in abattoirs. So that's a, that's a slightly different matter. If it's health-wise, though, are there some myths associated with that? Are, are, is meat, red meat, uh, detrimental to our health? Well, the, at this conference, um, there was an entire section on health. Um, it, it started with a bloke by the name of Neil Mann. He went through just the simple evolution of the, the human race, which historically has consumed animal-based proteins as part of their diet. I think about 65% um, have come from animal-based proteins and 35% of their diet comes from non-animal sourced foods. So that's what we've evolved with over you know, the last three and a half million years. So our teeth, our gut, our entire metabolism is structured around dealing with that and coping with it and thriving upon that type of intake. So that's, the, uh, that, that's where we've come from. The other, um, the other key thing that was explored, so a, a lady by the name of Alice Stanton, she spoke, she's quite a good nutritionist, um, and she spoke about populations where they consume less than 30% of their caloric intake or, or what they eat from animal-based proteins. Now, those populations where that happens, they end up with deficiencies. So this is things like iron and zinc, folate, vitamin A, vitamin B12, calcium. So all of those things, they're highly available through animal proteins and those populations not consuming them end up deficient. And the second you're deficient, you either have to take supplements or try and source those animal-based proteins to replace them. Now, if you actually go and compare, and this, this is really interesting, actually, if you go to, go to the alternative foodstuffs and look at the amount you would otherwise have to eat from grains, so those, um, those pulses that I was talking about, you have to eat about five times as much of those 
to extract the same amount of those minerals I just mentioned compared to a single dose of, um, of protein. So it's basically a one to five ratio. So imagine having to eat five times as much just to extract those minerals. And I suppose not everyone in the world has the ability the, or the finances to be able to actually access everything they need if you're not getting it from meat. And this is another crucial thing. You know, it's okay for the, 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 the sort of the kids in the western suburbs to say, well, I'm going to go and be a vegan and, uh, and I'll, uh, I'll get good nutritional advice and I'll go and consume supplements and that'll make sure I don't become deficient, maybe even get an injection of iron to stay ahead of it, particularly for women. Your, uh, the, the bulk of the world's population, they have access to neither that information nor those mineral supplements. If you were to ex- remove animal proteins from it, you would have a, a global health issue on your hands. Just chatting to Dr Graham Gardner, who's a livestock measurement technologies expert at Murdoch Uni. I suppose livestock can be very, very important for some family businesses, but in some countries, they're even more important than that, aren't they? Yeah, this is crucial. So in Africa, the um, the ruminant population of the world, about 20% of it is based there. And they for, um, for many of those populations, they represent like a bank. So, so their wealth is stored in the animals that they own and, of course, prestige is tied up around that. Um, so you've got both that nutritional overlay, the, um, the readily available minerals and amino acids from what they're eating, but also you've got the economic and societal overlay. And that's crucial. That's not going to be an easy thing to fix in Africa. I think they, they do need help. So you know, the, that 20% of the ruminant population tend to be poorly productive and high methane emitters. So um, that's certainly, in terms of global attention, that's an area that, um, that could do with a bit of help. The other thing to look at is the, the, the worldwide availability of energy and protein. Now, as a, just a, a total body of food that is out there, um, the estimates are that we still have plenty of energy available for the existing population, albeit I, I will concede it's not equitably distributed and that needs to be fixed. But the, uh, the energy is there. Protein, alternatively, is more on a nice edge. So at the moment, it looks like we've just got enough protein for meeting the, the human population's requirements across the world. If we were to suddenly remove animal-based proteins from that, you've got a huge issue on your hands. So for a start, we can't grow enough of these um, pulse grains to, to replace that protein. The humans would have to eat five times as much of them and you would then be dealing with having to redistribute those um, into, into areas of the world where it's hard to get them to. Whereas, you know, your ruminants, they can be owned by, um, by farmers in third world countries. They can eat and, and sustain themselves on, on very poor um, feedstuffs um, that are largely inedible to humans. And, um, and you know, they, they effectively are a key part of feeding those populations of the world. So just going back to where we started with the methane emission side of things, if you were advising politicians in Australia and throughout the world as to what to do to try to help the environment to decrease our methane emissions, given everything you've just mentioned there, what would your advice be? So in Australia, um, you know, we've got the, the technologies to act upon 
the emissions on several fronts. So there was actually a, a couple of good presentations by, uh, by Phil Verco and Manny Curnow, and they, they were talking about the, the animal itself and the ability to feed it substances like seaweeds. Mm-hmm. The asparagopsis would, argument. Yeah, the yep. asparagopsis story that would reduce the amount of carbon coming out, the amount of methane. Um, but also to select for animals that emit less. So, uh, so that's the emission part of the story. Now, the other, the other part of the story that's often overlooked, so you've got to look at the amount of carbon produced per product generated. Now, if we were to talk about the grams of protein produced per carbon emitted, you can actually significantly shift that balance as well by selecting for fast-growing, lean animals, so long as you don't wreck their eating quality. So in Australia, we can actually we, we've got the the measurement technologies available to us now that can measure and quantify that in excellent detail. In fact, far better than anywhere in the world. It's an absolute strength of our um, of our livestock industries. So uh, so this is a in my opinion, this is a key thing that we should get ahead of if we can properly benchmark the amount of protein that we are generating from these animals trade on that value and maintain its eating quality, then the market can respond. And we've got, this is the crucial one, documented evidence to prove to governments and international auditing bodies that our, our emissions claims per kilogram of protein are accurate. If that catches on worldwide, we could be at the forefront of all this. So it's been a fascinating discussion with you and I'd, I'd love to keep going, but we have run out of time. Dr. Graham Gardner, thanks for your time on the Country Hour. Thanks very much, Richard. Yeah, Dr. Richard Gardner, or Graham Gardner at least, a livestock measurement technologies expert from Murdoch University, chewing the fat there with Richard Hudson. After a recent conference where the human diet was a big point of discussion, some interesting observations, which you may have some thoughts on, text us 0438 922 that number. Still to come on the Country Hour, what one young farmer thinks of the new year and a special story from 2022 involving the rescue of giant crayfish in Tasmania's northwest. Plus, we'll check the weather. First up, the news headlines with Loretta Loberger. Thanks, Tony. A prisoner who escaped from the Royal Hobart Hospital overnight has died in a shooting incident in Hobart's northern suburbs. Nicholas Aaron Scott was at the Royal receiving medical treatment when he escaped just before midnight last night. He was found dead by police officers in the suburb of Granton about an hour and a half later after they received reports of a gunshot. Queensland police have been contacting the relatives of four people killed in a mid-air collision between two helicopters on the Gulf. Gold Coast. Of the nine survivors, a 33-year-old woman and two boys aged 9 and 10 remain in a critical condition in hospital. The bodies of 28 men killed by gunfire have been found in the northwestern Burkina Faso. The West African country is battling a violent jihadist insurgency that has spread from neighbouring Mali over the past decade. WA's Department of Fire and Emergency Services says some Kimberley communities may be isolated for up to seven days as a result of flooding in the region. The department says flooding around the town of Fitzroy Crossing has reached an all-time high. More news at one. Time now to check the latest on the weather. Luke Johnston joins us from the Bureau. G'day, Luke. Hey, Tony. How are you going? Yeah, going pretty well. And, uh, yeah, we're a bit lucky that... uh, there doesn't seem to be no major damage stemming from those severe thunderstorms. Um, 
There's a bit of yeah, rain. Yeah, it was, was quite a quite a crazy day with a storm starting off in, in the north and, and northeast from some mid-level cloud and then the, the main event were the storms down in the southeast but thankfully they stayed uh, northeast of, of Hobart. We've had uh, plenty of reports of, of large to giant size hail about parts of the southeast uh, sort of centred around Campania to Carlton. But then uh, later on in the afternoon yesterday, there was another burst of thunderstorms that dropped quite a lot of rain pretty quickly about the uh, middle part of the east coast around sort of Orford, Buckland and, and parts of Little Swanport that had sort of 25 to 50 millimetres in a very short time period. So okay. very interesting day yesterday. And I'm sorry to say that, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to say that today's weather is much less exciting. Yes. Um, some people are into that sort of, you know, exciting storm chasing, but uh, today we've got a nice stable high pressure system south of the Bight, uh, extending a ridge over most of the state. There's a, a little meso low pressure system off the north coast in Bass Strait, uh, north of about Olveston, with a, a little trough just bringing some showers onto the uh, northeast and uh, northwest of Tasmania today. Only expecting a few millimetres, but uh, inland about the western tiers and high ground in the northwest, you could see around 10 to 20 millimetres or so. But everywhere else in Tasmania, just a few light showers underneath very cloudy state at the moment. Okay, and uh, what can we expect over the next few days, Luke? Well, the next few days, the, the, the high-pressure system to the south of the Bight is just going to gradually get closer and closer. It's expected to pass to our south and, and sit to the southeast of us in the Tasman Sea by Friday. So what that's going to mean is this week's going to be relatively cool. There's going to be uh, light showers in most areas on most days, uh, predominantly driven by very light onshore winds. So expect cloudy conditions this week, no significant falls after potentially the decent rain up in the northwest uh, later on today and uh, yeah, very light wind and, and cool to mild temperatures. We're only expecting to see temperatures in the high teens to low 20s in the south for most of this week and into the, the low to mid 20s across parts of the north this week as well. So very much a, a cooler week compared to what we had between Christmas and New Year. And warnings, what have we got? Well, no warnings for today. We've just got a strong wind warning current for tomorrow for some strong winds coming up the uh, far northwest coast in the early morning. Uh, generally, the coastal waters today are southwest to southerly, 5 to 15 knots, shifting easterly 10 to 20 knots through the central north coast during the day. Winds 15 to 25 knots in the northeast and northwest. Tomorrow, winds will be a little bit fresher, southwest to southeasterly, 10 to 20 knots, reaching up to 30 knots in the far north at far northwest early, with afternoon sea breezes about the north coast. Today and tomorrow, the swell stays uh, well, relatively similar about the west and south. There's a west to southwesterly near three metres, currently on just under three metres off the uh, wave rider ball on the west coast. Through Bass Strait today and tomorrow, a northeasterly to around one metre and a westerly to around one metre. And the east coast today and tomorrow has a northeasterly one and a half metres, uh, reaching two metres in the north uh, later tomorrow, as well as a southerly to below one metre coming up the east coast. And significant wave height in the east coast right now, about 1.7 metres. OK, and no more of those uh, kind of storms on the horizon, Luke, with the harvest going on? No. Good. No, it doesn't look like it. looks like a pretty quiet week. It was a bit of a struggle to come up with things to focus on. Our, our next cold front looks to be uh, Monday evening next week, and it looks like uh, Sunday and Monday could be fairly warm before that cold front gets here, but we're only talking low 30s, and it doesn't look like it has as much oomph in that cold front as the one we had yesterday that had the very unstable air mass ahead of it. So okay. fingers crossed that one doesn't ramp up because those storms are not nice. No, not at all. Okay, Luke, thanks for that. 
Thanks, Tony. Luke Johnston from the Bureau with all the details for you on the Country Hour. And coming up for you, we uh, we talk about the mango harvest. Not very good for one far north Queensland uh, grower. And also a lovely story from uh, from last year, which we'll replay for you. Crayfish rescue and farmers involved in that all coming up for you shortly. We are one. But we are men. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And just a reminder too that uh, the next three days... Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Country Hour will be on at lunchtime in the cricket. There will be a digital program for you online at uh, midday as per normal, but uh, we'll be on the radio on uh, the lunchtime in the cricket around about 12.40 each day, unless, of course, uh, rain disrupts proceedings. But uh, that's happening with the third test, South Africa and Australia from the Sydney Cricket Ground tomorrow, full broadcast on your ABC radio. And uh, as I say, we'll be on in lunchtime, 12.40. Well, the mango harvest is winding up in far north Queensland with many growers either finished or set to finish in the next week. But the mood in the industry is despondent after an oversupply of fruit caused prices to plummet. Good for the uh, consumers. By Boora grower Alan Stewart tells Tanya Murphy he'll be glad to see the end of the season. Oh, it's most probably been the most difficult mango season that I can uh, remember. Yeah, very very testing times, very low prices and uh, difficult in terms of hot, you know, heat wave conditions early on. And now we're getting the monsoon right at the end of the season. So, yeah, a difficult year. How are the prices going at the moment? So uh, there was definitely a glut there from about the middle of December right through to Christmas for about two weeks there where, you know, they were telling people that, uh, yeah, don't bother harvesting or... Even some fruit I'd sent away at that stage, I'm still waiting for prices back because I think there's a lot of fruit put into coal rooms, uh, which is not a good news because it doesn't move the stock and uh, you're possibly going to get not much better price anyway. The price after Christmas, I don't know, it has come up a a few dollars, but uh, I think there's still a fair quantity of mangoes in the market and I know I've still got mangoes in a coal room that I've got to send away next week and there's still a bit on the tree to harvest but I'm not optimistic that the price is going to come up all that much but you know I suppose if you can make a couple of dollars more there it might average you out a little bit better over the season that's all we can hope for. What sort of mangoes do you grow? Mainly KP. I have a few R2E2 but uh, the main crop's KP and uh, they have seemed to have fared a little bit better price-wise than the R2E2. We did start the R2E2 harvest and uh, really the bottom fell out the market and uh, it got to a stage there where it was hardly worth picking them anymore. I'd had some harvested already and I sent them away. But I put the R2E2 harvest on hold, as a few other growers did around the place, and uh, I switched over to the KP again because they are, uh, they're a bit more desirable in the market and they're getting a bit better price. So 
hopefully um, that was the right thing to do. You mentioned heat waves. Can you tell us a bit about those and what impact they have on the mangroves? Yeah, well, we haven't had a really hot season for a while, for a few years, and um, I think our heat wave, you know, was around 37, 38, around that, you know, middle of December. And what what that'll do, heat will tend to ripen the fruit quicker on the tree. So, you know, fruit that really maybe would have sat there or hung on the tree till after Christmas, we found it just ripened quicker on the tree uh, and you had to get in and harvest it quicker. Just as an example, like the last couple of years, like last year, I picked mangoes until the middle of January and I have on a, uh, a few years. But this year, basically all the mangoes, you know, were mature by Christmas and had to be harvested by Christmas. Obviously, it's been raining a lot recently. What impact does that have? Yeah, well, mango growers don't like to see rain. Well, we like to see rain, but not not when there's a mango hanging on the tree. Uh, certainly during harvest, rain will mark the fruit and damage the fruit, cause diseases to come into it. The fruit absorbs moisture, sucks up moisture, does become a softer fruit, maybe shortens the shelf life a little bit. So any rain during harvest season is not really welcome, but, you know, what can you do? Haven't met anybody that can stop the monsoons yet. How would you describe the general mood among growers in the region? Yeah, well, look, I I got quite depressed actually this season, which is a bit unusual for me. The avocado season was pretty bad, I think, for the area. You know, low prices from what I heard, uh, following on now with the mango season. So it's not good for the farmers in the area. I don't grow avocados, but if you had both of them, avocados and mangoes, you wouldn't be feeling real healthy at the moment, I suppose. But I'm glad it's over is the best thing to say. You know, at the end of the season, we're all a bit happy that we're finished. But yeah, once you get rid of a bad one, you can only look forward to something a bit better. Not happy. Far North Queensland mango grower Alan Stewart speaking with Tanya Murphy. But uh, plenty of mangoes around, especially around Tasmania, around the shops and at good prices too. Uh, Just a message from police and emergency services. They're on the scene of a motorcycle crash at the junction of Blackwood Creek Road and Liffey Road at Bracknell. Male rider has sustained non-life-threatening injuries. Motorists are advised to use caution whilst travelling through that area until the scene is cleared. That's the junction of Blackwood Creek Road and Liffey Road at Bracknell. Know your emergency plan this summer. A third consecutive London. And rely on ABC to be with you. What can I do? Broadcasting up-to-the-minute critical information. We have issued an emergency warning. Online at ABC Emergency and on your local ABC radio. ABC radio, reliable source for information. Stay safe, stay connected. I don't know what I'd do without the ABC. Download the ABC Listen app and stay connected with your local ABC radio station. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. 2022 has been a tough year for many farmers, so what are the young farmers especially thinking about for this year? Keely Noble lives in Narromine in western New South Wales and works on drought policy for the New South Wales government. She's 27, works in her husband's haymaking business. And she's also a finalist in the Rural Achiever Program, which is part of the Royal Easter Show. David Clawton asked her about the season in Narromine and her aspirations for 2023. We've found it really difficult to make hay and perhaps even sow and do some of our other activities in the last year to two years. Our our hay season has been quite miserable, to be honest. So um, if the rain did cut back a bit, 
it would be nice in that sense. Because you've got a lot of so- uh, moisture in the soil. Is, would that be right for your area? Um, yeah, moisture in the soil, but the difficulty has been the rain. Like you haven't had a chance to cut all bale hay. It's one of those things that, yeah, you, you need to look at the forecast and you need a good seven to ten days of no rain, and we just haven't had that. So unfortunately, yeah, we weren't able to make much hay the last two years. Mm, but you think the things have turned now and it's getting pretty dry? It's feeling, yeah, definitely in the air at the moment. It's feeling dry um, and everyone's kind of saying like, geez, you just look around, it does have that bit of a droughty feel to it. So obviously we don't really want drought, but the weather patterns we've had for the last two years in that hay season and harvest time has made things really difficult and, you know, really hard and definitely affected prices and quality of what, what we have been able to get off both in terms of hay and grain. And that drought probably has affected you like it did a lot of young people from agricultural areas because you've really spread your risk, haven't you? You're still in farming, but you've got a steady job and, and you've also just qualified to be a, a celebrant. Is that right? <laughs> yes, yes. So I'm one of the newest marriage celebrants around, um, which is a really fun and I guess, too, it is that diversity in income, which is probably what led me that way. But, yeah, the drought, experiencing the last drought, um, I was just doing admin working at our local tractor dealership. And I just I saw people get made redundant, um, like my colleagues being made redundant there and then on the spot. And it was quite it was quite hard to watch. And then um, I finished uni and I did, yeah, ag and business at uni. And everyone says, oh, when you finish uni, you know, the world's your oyster. But it wasn't. I was in Narromine because I already have a family here and we had a business here. I couldn't just move anywhere for work. I needed to find work around this area with my degree, but no one was hiring because of the drought. So it was it was quite hard and I think it really did um, affect me and shape me to now go on and work in that drought resilience space and that, you know, that planning and helping communities build that cohesion. So next time drought happens, hopefully the impacts aren't felt so bad at local levels and and maybe the wedding business is not a bad one to be in because there's a bit of a trend going i reckon for for farm weddings or or weddings in rural areas yeah definitely so i actually trade as the central west celebrant um because there there weren't many celebrants out this way you know doing it and in terms of speaking i myself got married um a couple years ago and i had a good celebrant but with what we do with the contracting and I guess our rural lifestyle, it, she found it, it was quite awkward for her to um, speak about it because it wasn't the terms or the lifestyle she was used to. So I kind of saw that gap and being young too, um, I know people people like to do business with someone they can relate to and your wedding day is one of the biggest days yep. of your life. So you need someone you feel comfortable with. So yeah, I... Um, decided I'll do the course and put myself out there and it's going pretty good so it's going to be very busy um coinciding if if say this rain does um stop and we do have a busy hay and harvest next year it's going to be a bit of a juggle but it'll be fun and definitely worth it yes and you've got one young one as well so it's not like you're you're just sitting back on your haunches there um tell me about 2023 and what your aspirations are and, and maybe you know what's your thinking around agriculture more broadly yeah, I guess I'll start with me personally. And my first goal is to run more and read more books. I just feel like that will do me good um, and give me a lot of thinking space and a lot of things to build off. It's just a good way to start your day. You just, you know, have that time to think and it's just you and yourself. Like, yeah. Aren't you working also physically on the farm? 
Oh, I do bit, but that's definitely more um, my husband Ross and his dad, and um, they've got an employee too at the moment. So yeah. my my um, work with Ross is more so the admin and logistics and oh, okay. the little things like you know keeping everyone fed during hay or harvest, which doesn't seem much, but it takes some time and it, it keeps everyone flowing. And yeah, it's it's something I'm really in, like really passionate about doing um, with our business is that well-being of people. I just don't think you know considered important enough in the future. It's definitely going to grow, but the little things you can do um, during those really busy and stressful periods, yeah, that's what I take under my wing and hopefully um, everyone appreciates. I'm sure they do at harvest time, a good feed. And what's on the top of your reading list? Um, I'm reading Atomic Habits at the moment, which is... Atomic Habits. Yeah, Atomic Habits. Have you read it? No. Yeah, I would recommend it's one of those books too if you're going to read it. Like it's a perfect time to read it now before the new year starts because it's all about setting up um, good habits. But yeah, going back to 2023 as a whole, um, it's a big year definitely. And with the Rule Achiever program coming on, um, I'm really excited to do a lot of um, personal and professional development through that and grow my my networks and my advocacy skills. Um, working, I feel really privileged to be a rural person Um who's also involved in the ag industry, but working in the um, New South Wales government space and policy, like I really enjoy that. And I like what I get to bring to my day job from my home life and, um, you know, really advocate for the, the regional people and the regional industries as someone who lives and breathes it. So I really want to use the Rural Achiever Program as an opportunity to grow my skills, my network, and, um, yeah, just overall become a bit more polished and better in policy to, you know, continue on in that space for a long time and hopefully bring good benefits to our regions and industry. And are you feeling positive for, as, for, for agriculture more broadly this year? Do you think it's going to be a good one? Um, it's hard to say, isn't it? But I think I feel like it's going to be less challenging. Like I think 2022 was an extremely challenging year. We had extremely high input costs. We had um, labour challenges, especially during sowing. Um, sowing was hard too with the the weather and the constant rain. There was people out here that missed crops, or you know, perhaps moving more towards harvest, they couldn't spray at ideal times, so their grain quality was affected. Um, I'm thinking. Yeah, 2023 is going to be a bit, um, a bit easier and perhaps maybe a bit cheaper. We're seeing um, even diesel prices have started to cool off a bit, which is really nice, and some of the other inputs. Um, so looking forward to that. That'd be good. But yeah, I'm not really sure. I, I think it might be a bit of a dry finish at the end, to be honest. But I think um, my husband Russ wouldn't mind that. <laughs> so yep. see what happens. To get off the hay. That'd be great. Yeah, to get some hay, so be good. Keely Noble, who lives in Narromine in western New South Wales, a finalist in the Young Achiever Awards, talking there to David Clawton. We were talking mangoes earlier. Will chips in with this pun. A man goes crazy if he's relying on income from mangoes this season. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Very clever, Will. Keep them coming for 2023. We uh, do appreciate your punny input, if we can put it that way. 
Well, the Country Hour last year had a number of unique and amazing stories from our rural sector in 2022. As we start 2023, let's revisit one of those amazing stories. This one from Meg Powell. Deep in a northwest forest, some farmers have joined forces to help protect one of Tasmania's rarest creatures, the giant freshwater crayfish. Once it was normal for someone like fifth-generation farmer Malcolm to clear fertile land next to rivers and turn it into pasture. He had no idea of the severe impact that might have had on one of the planet's most unique creatures. Thanks to a protected project, at least, that started three years ago, farmers are now taking action to save the species as well as improving their farms along the way. If you walked in a straight line that way, you would hit the Antarctica and you wouldn't hit a town. Literally, they're just... This is Malcolm. He's showing me around his paddock, which is buried in thick, dense forest alongside a river in far northwest Tasmania. A Tassie tiger still here? (laughs) He's a fifth generation farmer, and in the 1980s, Malcolm, his father, and his brother decided to clear a 60 acre flat on the banks of the Detention River. I left school when I was 15 and a half. And, um, yeah, so I was 16, 17, 18. And, yeah, that's just, uh, that was, my nightlife was down here. <laughs> uh, pushing fire heaps together and we blew the stumps with, you know, nitropyl and jellic knife and, yeah, and, yeah. A 17, 18-year-old boy's dream, yeah, probably. That's exactly right, yeah, blowing things up, yeah, and yeah, it's experimenting and, yeah, blowing up full trees and seeing how high you could lift them off the ground and things like that. <laughs> Happy days, yeah. I'm sure you noticed the landscape changed over the time after after you cleared it. Can you explain to me a little bit about what happened? As we started clearing, we come across you know real swampy areas, and um, the, the creek used to you know weave its way you know, across the, the the 60 acre paddock, you know, and then we got to a certain point, and then we put a, a main what we call the main drain, excavated drain, straight through the middle in a nice straight line, and just to dry the rest of the bush ground out and the tea tree scrub and everything so that we could actually clear it, you know, and it just stayed wet all the time. Yeah, it's, you virtually couldn't actually walk through it, a lot of it. Um, now, we'll fast forward in time about 40 years mm. and, and you got a phone call or a door knock yeah. from someone, yeah. a, a visitor. Yeah, yeah. Um, Fiona from Cradle Coast um, contacted us and said that, you know, she had grants available to, to fence the river, you know, to, the, the, the protect the, the cattle you know, stand on lob, you know, in, in the habitat for the, the lobsters. You may not have caught it, but Malcolm is talking here about a rare and endangered creature that is found nowhere else in the entire world except for low-lying rivers across the north of Tasmania. It's called the giant freshwater crayfish, and its population has been dwindling for decades thanks to overfishing and habitat loss. And included in that grant was the... Um, off-stream watering, like with you know water pipes and, and concrete troughs, and uh, three-wire electric fence to fence off the river. And um, it, we had only had a single wire around the edge of the river, and every year we'd have to replace it. And and you know, there were issues with cows falling in rivers and things like that. Where now, like it's more of a permanent boundary fence. What did you think when she first contacted you? Oh well, she she was she was initially told said that she was the lobster lady, <laughs> affectionately. But um, <laughs> sounds like a superhero. A superhero, but yeah, no. Look, once like we started talking and realised you know it, it was going to benefit both parties, 
right at the very beginning, we looked at areas in this northwest that were good crayfish habitat. We were also only working... Fiona Marshall, leader of the Cradle Coast Authority's Giant Freshwater Crayfish Project. And we were trying to find sections of river that was mainly agricultural. Here we are beside the detention where we've got this magic remnant forest along the, the banks of the river and we've got really good patches of remnant vegetation in the Crown lands. So we've got a really good vegetation corridor, um, ideal habitat for crayfish. You know, we've got flowing water, we've got still water, we've got lots of fallen timber, etc. So, um, yeah, we narrowed it down to six areas based on the landholder interest and, and that was then when I had to speak to landholders that were adjoining and opposite banks like we were trying to get I guess a corridor not just a scattergun approach. They called you the lobster lady. (laughs) Yeah I wasn't aware of that. Um, (laughs) People weren't forced to do anything as um, Malcolm said it was really a negotiation process. What was your approach to Malcolm's property? Well, what happened is I brought out an air photo with me and Malcolm and I virtually walked from the top, the upstream end to the downstream end. We, I took photos, we looked at where there might have been damage to outside bends, etc. Um, and then we talked about the kind of works. Malcolm, it's been a while that these fences have been in now. What differences have you noticed? Um, well, I've noticed like the, the, the rushes are, and you know, the, even small blackwoods have actually started to grow up behind the fences, you know, at where before like the cattle's were, cattle were just you know, literally eat, been eaten them in the wintertime. And yeah, it, you can actually see, like I said, coming back like, and it's thickening up. Over time, I'd love to see some really big lobsters come back into this environment. I mean, there's no doubt we're, we're not trapping or tagging very large ones so they really have had a lot of pressure put on them over the years but yeah hopefully there's hope for them there. Had you thought much about those before all of this? Um, well I've, like I've grew up beside the river you know hunting and fishing and you know you see lobsters running around and everything and you know we used to find lobsters out the middle of the paddock you know when we were clearing and things like that so we knew they were here and uh, they've always and you know, they've always been here in lots of numbers that and blackfish and everything so and eels and all you know all the, the, the river health so i mean but if you've got a healthy river you know you, you, everything else is sort of healthy the same but i think um i don't mean to swear here but i think you've become a bit of a greenie <laughs> yeah yes oh, well uh, every farmer is a greenie and i mean they've got they've got to be you look after your animals and you look after the ground and you know they look after each other we cleared a lot of ground and I, I still cut down trees and cut firewood and, you know, I'm, you know, I'm the first one to, you know, burn a log and all the rest of it. But you've got to be a, a greenie, you know, to look after the ground the best, you know, otherwise, you know, you're, you're not a farmer if you're not looking after the ground. That's Rocky Cape Farmer Malcolm ending that report from Meg Powell on the protection of the giant crayfish in Tasmania's northwest. More of that story online at ABC Rural Online, ending the Country Hour for today. Now we will catch you at lunchtime in the cricket tomorrow from the SCG at 12.40.